Well, good evening, everyone. So glad to see you here at the Neighborhood Church. Uh, I would invite you to grab a Bible or your phone and swipe to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews is toward the very back of your Bible. We're going to look at a passage in Hebrews chapter 6, and later on in our time together, we're going to jump over to Hebrews chapter 10. But as you're turning there, I so love that Pastor Kathy shared a God story from some of our kingdom partners. And I also so love that we had Miguel and Becky share their own God story as well. Tonight, I want to share with you out of Hebrews chapter 6, an ancient God story of a man named Abraham. And I also want to paint a God picture a picture unlike any other picture that we have in the New Testament. But before we get there, I want to remind you of what we've already been talking about and praying about and singing about, and that is that we have begun this weekend the season of Advent. Advent is the season that precedes Christmas, and Advent is the first season in the church calendar. So Happy New Year. And in our first week of Advent, our theme for this evening is hope, as you see there on the screen. And I just want to give you some bonus B-side, Jesus is our hope phrases that Miguel and Becky chose not to share in the lighting of the hope Advent candle. So before we get into another God story and a God picture, I'm going to embarrass him like he embarrassed me by blowing up my phone this afternoon with a bunch of rhyming Jesus is our hopes. Y'all ready? This is happening. Jesus is our hope when we're at the end of our rope. Jesus is our hope because he looks like the Pope. Not really, but okay. Jesus is our hope like groceries in our tote. Doesn't rhyme, but okay. He gets back on track and says, Jesus is our hope and there's no reason to mope. Jesus is our hope when he washes our souls with soap. He's not done. Jesus is our hope because he helps us to cope. Jesus is our hope, though we can't find him with a telescope. And then he really runs out of gas at the end. Jesus is our hope when we're roaming like antelope. And I wanted to say, just light the candle tonight. We're going to be talking about hope. We're going to be looking at a God story and a God picture. Would you join me in Hebrews chapter 6? If you'll give me a moment to turn there myself. We're going to begin in verse 13. (laughs) When God made his promise to Abraham... Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, God swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves. So think like putting your hand on a Bible kind of thing. Then the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Verse 17. But because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, 
God confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things, that would be the promise and the oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. I want to tell you a God story, and I want to paint a God picture that has to do with hope. But the thing about hope is that it involves waiting. The very nature of hoping for something entails that you don't have it yet. And Advent is a season of waiting and a season of hope. Not just because we got to wait to open up our Christmas presents, but it's a season of waiting, as Pastor Kathy shared earlier, when we put ourselves back into the shoes of God's people who were a waiting people that waited for centuries for God's king to come and finally rescue them from all the bullies of all the other nations. They waited and waited and waited. And then in humility, Christ Jesus, the chosen king, came to rescue God's people, which is what we just sang. And we are able to put ourselves in their shoes because we really don't have to just look backwards. We don't have to look backwards to the time when Jesus came the first time. We are living in a season now in which we are still waiting and hoping for when Jesus comes again in victory. Advent is a season of waiting when we look back to when Jesus came in humility. And then we also look forward to when Jesus returns in victory. It's a season where we look backwards, a season where we look forwards, but it's a season of waiting. I hate to tell you that God's people are a waiting people. God's people are waiters. If you have signed up into the family of God to follow Jesus, you have signed up to a life of waiting. I hate to break this to you, but you're probably already saying, yeah, tell me about it. Because how many of you right now are in a season of waiting? You don't have to raise your hands, but I bet you we know it too. Because you have waited and waited and waited, and you've done everything you can do, and you're waiting for God to do what you can't do. And all you have to do is hope and wait and be patient. So whether you're waiting for some big things, or whether you're waiting for some small everyday things, Waiting is hard, and waiting is really especially hard in an instant kind of society, right? Y'all are about to order some Christmas presents, and you don't really have to time it like you used to and hope that they're going to show up by December 24th or 25th because we've got same-day delivery, y'all. We don't even have to go to Walmart because they'll wrap it up all for us. We pull up to the parking lot, and they bring it to us. Waiting is hard, big or small, in an instant society. But I need you to understand at the beginning of this season of waiting that God 
does not waste our waiting. Okay? Even though it's hard, even though it's unpleasant, even when we think that God has abandoned us and he's done with us, we need reminding that while we're waiting, God is working. God is working in the world in unseen ways, in unseen places that we have no concept of. But we need reminding of that he's at work even when we can't see it. And I also need you to remember that while we're waiting, God is working in us. In an instant society, we don't grow endurance and patience and love and joy and peace instantly. So then God uses waiting to develop our trust, our patience, and our hope. Are you with me? I think you know this to be true. Because if you got everything you've asked for immediately, you would want to use God, not trust him. If you got everything you prayed for this week instantly, you'd want to use God and trust in your own magic prayer to get what you want instead of trusting a God who knows what you need and knows when you need it. But still, we struggle to wait. If our spiritual growth was as instant as Amazon Prime, we would never become the people strong enough to hold on through the bitter end and through the storms. Right before the passage that we just read in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews has been going through for five chapters saying, Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than Moses, and Jesus is better than the priests and all the other things you see. Jesus is better, 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 better. And he uses all these ancient stories of the Hebrew people or the Israelite people. And he says, guys, you've got to stay strong. You've got to hold on. You've got to stay hopeful. And so this God story that we're going to look at right now, this story of Abraham, which was to them the biggest kind of celebrity you could ever imagine. Right before this passage we just read, the writer of Hebrews says, we don't want you to become lazy. We don't want you to think that it's all about just the vending machine and it's just all going to happen. No, we don't want you to become lazy. We want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what's promised. And then he says, like Abraham. So our God story, as told by the writer of Hebrews, is an example of what it looks like to wait and to hope. And it's so important because, y'all, if you're like me and you're in a season of waiting, you start to doubt that God really is trustworthy You start to despair that things will ever get better. So we need to look at God's stories in our everyday life and community, as well as the ancient ones like Abraham. So with this God story, and he's talking about hope, which is something future, he's going to pull an Adam card. I'm told that when I'm asked to tell a story or tell me about your day, I say things like, well, when I woke up this morning, they're like, no, no, no. Tell me, like, what happened this afternoon. Well, actually, I have to go back to Monday because this crazy thing happened. Or those people like my grandfather, for whom I get this storytelling propensity from, well, tell me about, you know, what happened last week. He goes, well, when I was born in Mississippi, you know what I'm talking about? 
y'all know that I don't talk like that, right? Y'all know that I'm not long-winded, right? As my wife rolls her head back laughing. To tell a story about the future and the hope in the present with Jesus, he's going to go all the way back to the beginning of God's family and God's people, and we meet a man named Abraham. In Genesis 12, right in the middle of the book of ancient, ancient history, Noah and Adam and all that, we zoom in to look at one dude for one family. And in Genesis chapter 12, this God of the universe goes and seeks out this man named Abram. Abram had never heard of God, had not worshipped God. Presumably, he's walking around doing his thing. And this God that we know today seeks Abram out. And he says something incredible to him. He says, hey, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you a family through which the whole world and all the families are going to be blessed. So can you imagine you're going about your day and some deity that you've never worshipped, heard of, or thought about meets you and says, hey, by the way, you're kind of a cool dude. Through you, every nation of the world will be blessed. That would kind of be a big deal. But here's the trick. This call was not just this blessing. It came with this partnership. And the first thing that God asked Abraham to do is, so I'm going to see if you can learn to trust me here. So I'm going to ask you to actually get up and move to a land that I've promised you. So think about if someone came to you and said, I've got a job, but it's in Manhattan. Okay, well, tell me about the job. I can't. It's just going to be the greatest job that you've ever heard of in your life. But you got to get up and go right now. And then imagine that it's not just you and your Prius. It's you and like a whole host of support staff and servants. And you've got eight dogs and 14 cats. And he's saying, we're actually going to ask you to relocate your whole entourage to Manhattan. Well, I don't know, like, can I find an apartment? I don't know what that's going to look like. What if somebody's already living there? This effectively is what God is asking this man, Abram. And to be blessed in order to be a blessing involves this trust in relationship. So Abraham gets all him and his posse. And then we move through Genesis 13. We move through Genesis 14. And months and years have passed And then all of a sudden in Genesis 14, he meets a mysterious character named Melchizedek. We're going to talk about Melchizedek for maybe like a minute at the end. But if you are interested, the writer of Hebrews has a lot more to say about Melchizedek in the next chapter. But his name is hard to say, and I've already said it twice. So we're not going to talk a whole lot about Melchizedek. Just know that he's this mysterious priest figure that was a priest of the Most High God. Listen, before there were priests in Israel. So put on your Bible study caps and understand that whole book of Leviticus, all of those laws, that comes hundreds of years later. Are you with me? And here's Abram just getting to know and trust this God, Yahweh, and he's just moseying up to his new place in Manhattan or the promised land. And then he bumps into this priest that blesses Abraham and basically confirms that God is still with you. And I just wonder if along Abraham's journey, that if that was not some signpost to say, oh yeah, I guess I'm still on the right track. 
as I'm going to a land and a season and toward a hope that I still have not taken possession of. Then we march into Genesis chapter 15. But for Abram, this is years later. And in Genesis chapter 15, God knocks on his door again. And he says, hey, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to all the families of the world. And he says, matter of fact, come outside and look up at the stars. And all of these that you can count. You're going to have more descendants than these stars. Matter of fact, if you went out to the beach, you'd have more descendants than the grains of sand on the beach. And then Abraham says, excuse me, I'm actually like in my 80s, and I don't have any kids. So that ship has sailed, God, thanks, but I think I'm going to turn and go home. No, that's not what he says. He says, are you sure? How can I trust you? And then God says something amazing In the ancient world, you'd expect that kind of God to say, you know what, forget it, forget you, the whole bet's off. I thought you were learning to trust me. I thought you were learning to walk with me and work with me here. I'm done, I'm gonna go find Sabram. (laughs) But instead, what he does is he enters into humility, this covenant partnership that was pretty gruesome. And they took an animal, and they cut it in half, and they laid it on two sides of a path. And it's a way in the ancient world that before you had notaries and things like this, it's a way in which you would say, if I break my oath and my promise, let me wind up like this animal. And God in this mysterious scene passes through as this kind of fire through it, where God even puts his own self and reputation and life on the line for some dude on his way to a hope that he's yet to take hold of. God humbles himself to the point that says, I am linking arms and locking in with you. Abraham, who gives up his wife, Sarah, in a few chapters before that, because he doesn't want to get attacked and assaulted and killed so that they could take him. Abraham, who doesn't trust God enough for what is told you're going to have a son, where he's going to go take matters into his own hand, and Sarah says, go, go into this mistress, since I can't have you. Abraham, who blows it and makes mistakes, God still is linking arms and partnering with him, which leads me to believe that God might still partner and link up with us, even when we make mistakes and struggle to wait and hold fast to the hope that we have before us. But God doesn't just walk through the covenant partnerships with the animals. He makes an oath. And the writer of Hebrews says this strange thing that sounds weird to us. It might have sounded weird to the original audience. So he said, hey, people did these kinds of oaths and like swear on a Bible like we talked about a moment ago because we needed to put some weight into our words. And so often what happens is like on recess in fifth grade, you say, I swear on my grandma's grave, I swear that that bug was purple. This is the same thing that went all throughout the ancient world. And so here's the deal. Presumably for the five-year-old, grandma is more reputable and better than him, so he's going to hitch his wagon to something greater. Hebrews says God himself is entering into this partnership, and there ain't nobody greater than God, so all God has to say is, "Um, on my own life and reputation, I make this promise and this oath. And the oath and the promise is he said, we're going to come back, this is later on after this covenant, 
and Sarah, who's very old, is going to have a child. And what you need to know is that Sarah does have a child, and his name is Isaac. But for the sake of our purposes in our God story tonight, what you need to know is in Genesis 12, when Abram is first just minding his own business, and he's called to go to a land like Manhattan, Abram was 75 years old. And after a long journey... And this hope set before him that one day his descendants would be like the stars of the sky. The very first descendant was born 25 years later. So again, I ask you, what are you waiting for? And I want to be really careful because I say a lot of times, what's the difference between me stubbing my toe on this stool and falling off and breaking my arm? They both hurt, right? The toe stub hurts and the arm break hurts. It's still hard. The difference is the severity of the arm break and the toe. What's the difference between waiting 25 years or 25 minutes? It's still difficult, but here's what I contend to you. When you have 25 years of waiting, you've got a lot of trust and hope that needs giving. And in this God story, he says... It was through patience that Abram received what was promised because he waited patiently. And then he shifts gears and he talks about how we are the same kind of people. Whether it's 25 years or 25 minutes, we still have an invitation like Abram to leave everything that we knew to go to a Manhattan in our own life, hoping that we can trust God. Are you with me? And the writer of Hebrews says, this story is an example to us so that we, like Abraham, have fled everything that we knew and everything that we thought we had hoped for, and we have fled that to take hold of a hope that's greater than anything that we could ask or imagine. Could you... For a minute, imagine, is what you're waiting for even God's best? And perhaps some of the waiting is because you're still invited to even release some of your own expectations of what God has in store for you. Because Abraham probably thought that he had his own idea of the land that he was headed. He probably thought it would be free and easy. He probably thought that he would have a kid by nine months and not 25 years. But would we be people who look at a story like this and said, if Abraham could trust God, even in all of the mistakes for 25 years, could I leave behind my own assumptions of what God should do in order to take hold of something I'm certain God will? do. Okay? Should I leave behind what I think God ought to do to take hold of something God will do? And now we get into the God illustration, the God picture, and we say, what is promised of us? Okay? Are you with me? What is God promising us? What is the hope that lays before us? The image I'm trying to convey You've seen in movies, right? You've got the person that's in that airplane and the hangar is open and then you've got the hero that comes up in the other plane and they say what? Just jump, right? Trust me, I'm going to catch you, right? 
We watched this kids' movie, Despicable Me, a long time ago, and the only thing I remembered was Minions. But I was kind of going back and revisiting this not long ago, and at the very end, Gru, this guy that, could you really trust him? Oh, well, he's kind of got a heart of gold, and he's the Steve Carell voice with the crazy nose. He comes up on this airplane, and there's this rope that's attached to his children that he's been fostering. And they're in this other spaceship plane from the bad guy in the first one. They all kind of run together. He's one of those weird guys, and he's in his weird spaceship. And this rope is attached, and Gru says, do you trust me? Will you jump? And what happens is the first two trust him, and they fled to take hold of this person. But then there's this rope that extends between these two realities. And they hold on tight. Because the last one jumps, but she falls and falters, and she grabs hold of this rope. And hold on to this image, because when we get into this fascinating metaphor for what we are called to leave and look ahead to, we've got to let the writer of Hebrews paint this image for us. And he uses three pictures, and he weaves them together. So as we wind down and look at this illustration... Understand that he takes this idea of a rope that is anchored to something, okay? But he's also locating this in the place of the temple. And then he's going to merge another illustration to confuse all of us that will read this 2,000 years later of a forerunner or a scout or a trailblazer. And now we need to, after moving on from Abraham and this hinge idea and example of letting go of our own expectations to grab onto something better, he's going to use this fascinating metaphor that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. So we need to explain this metaphor and we need to say, okay, what is the hope set before us? Now, Stay with me as we near the end here. I preached a couple weeks ago, and it was super practical with lots of stories. Hebrews doesn't let us get off the hook that easy. But I love this image. And it starts with the temple. Once a year, a priest would go into what was called the Holy of Holies. Have you all heard of the Holy of Holies before? So I want you to imagine that there is this curtain right here from the end of this keyboard all the way running through this side of the stage, okay? Once a year, it was a big deal. They would get all dressed up, and they would even wear a tunic with bells on the bottom toward the feet. Now, this is important because once a year, this priest would walk through the first curtain, and that would be in the Holy of Holies, excuse me, the holy place, Then he would walk through the second curtain, and that would be into the Holy of Holies. Have I confused everybody yet? That's a lot of holies. So he's moved from the outer court where everybody else is into the holy place, and he's breathing deep because he's got one shot once a year to enter into the holiest, holy, 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 holy place. And he walks into the second curtain, and that is where the artifacts of ancient Israel were kept for part of the history of God's people. Things like Aaron's staff, things like the commandment uh, stones, 
that they had received. This was the place where they thought you could not get closer to God this side of heaven, okay? And the priest gets one shot once a year. Why was he going into the Holy of Holies? He was going into the Holy of Holies because there was something called the mercy seat there, and he was going to make an atonement. Have y'all heard that Bible word? At one meant an atonement of forgiving, a reconciling for all of God's broke down, sinful people. One shot, one day into the Holy of Holies. Now, he wears bells on his feet. Because when he does his priestly things, they are waiting outside of the curtain to hear them bells start to ring. Because they feared if he screwed this up, he would drop dead. So you can imagine this host of people listening, because all our sins being forgiven is on the line here. And they're waiting and hoping that they hear these bells start to jingle on out for Christmas time. Because it means, yes, it worked. Now, I want you to imagine one other piece. It's not recorded in the scriptures. It's not recorded in some of our ancient historians. But there is a tradition from some rabbis. If y'all would just go with me here. There is a tradition passed down that some places at some times they believed that he wouldn't just have his swanky bells at the end of his garment. They would even tie a rope around his waist. And they would tie, Don knows what I'm talking about, tie a rope around his waist so that when he goes through curtain number one and then in through door number two, they are leaving behind this rope to where if he does screw it up, they can drag his dead self on out of there. Now, what is this hope? What is this anchor? I want to illustrate it now with the other metaphors, that of the forerunner and of this anchor. Hebrews says we have this hope that is an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. Shout out to my cousin's husband, John, who is a fisherman, who was fishing today and was probably all over the lake because I've got his anchor. I'm not lying, he went fishing today and dropped this off to me last night. We all understand what an anchor does, right? An anchor drops deep into the mud, you can tell this one has been used, in order that our boat doesn't drift off of its course. We all understand this. We understand why the rope is important, because if we didn't have the rope, we'd lose our anchor. The rope, of course, connects where the thing is anchored and where we are at the top of the water. So, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. But then he says this strange turn of phrase where he says, it enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Well, who brought it there? And then he mixes this third image of Jesus, the trailblazing priest. Our forerunner planted what we can only describe as this anchor that is firm and locked in and secure and solid behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies where God's mercy is, where God's presence is, and he has planted an anchor right there in God's presence. Every good anchor has a rope, of course. 
And so we understand that Jesus didn't go in just to, like Neil Armstrong, plant a flag on the moon and say, look how awesome I am. The writer of Hebrews says he's done this on what? Our behalf. Where Jesus goes into the presence of the Holy of Holies, he brings back and blazes this trail that leaves this rope, this anchor, that connects us in the storms of life. It is firm and secure in our soul. And I need to tell you that we as waiting people need to understand that while we wait, we do not get a free pass from the storms that come. While we wait, we need to understand that having an anchor means we need an anchor because there are going to come things in your life that are going to distract and dissuade and despair your soul into veering off course. But why we need this reminder, why we need this hope while we wait is that you need to understand that where your anchor is matters. And when Jesus, the forerunner, entered into the holy place, beyond Melchizedek, this strange priest, beyond all the Levitical Israelite priests that make atonement here, there, or the other. In Hebrews chapter 10, we see, beginning in verse 19, and it's not on the screen, so I want you to listen or look with me. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holiest of holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our own hearts sprinkled or atoned to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Listen, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. You need to understand that within the storms of your life, what matters less is the circumstance in the storm. What matters more is the anchor that is firmly fixed in the very presence of God. Not in some temple that was made by human hands, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. But Jesus has gone ahead of us into the very presence of God and has staked his own anchor that we can hold on to the hope that we profess that keeps us rooted and forgiven when we feel unloved, when we feel unaccepted. We need to hold on tight to the rope that keeps us connected to the one who is faithful. When you are not faithful, he is faithful. The only job for you is to flee all the other imitations and shadows of what you hope for and cling to the hope that will not fail, to the one who will be faithful to you when you do fail. We need to remember that God's future can inform our present, and we can face death, even the death of loved ones, in hope that somewhere in the very heart and presence of God, we can hold on to a rope that extends and pierces the veil of what we can see and understand and know that he is trustworthy and that not even death or sin can separate you. 
And you need this because here we are in our own hearts, in our own souls, in our own boats, rocked by the wind, rocked by the waves, waiting and screaming and saying, God, where are you? And he says, hold on to the rope and look ahead to the future in hope because Christian hope is trusting the God who keeps his promises. And all we've got to do is hold on through the storms. He may not stop the storms then. So what is our hope? Our hope is that all things work together for good for those who love him. Our hope is that he has said, I have not left you as orphans. Our hope is that he has said, abide in me and I abide in you. Our hope is that when your own heart condemns you, God who is greater than your heart will restore you. Our own hope is that when we have sinned, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness because we don't need one day of atonement. That day was at Calvary on the cross. He sat down. No more priests are needed. No more sacrifices are needed. Our hope is this anchor point that says we are his now and then. And there is nothing that can remove this anchor from God's very heart and presence. And why this God picture and this God story matters is because you are waiting. You are waiting for some check. You are waiting for some diagnosis. You are waiting for some job. You are waiting for some relationship to be restored and renewed. You are waiting for something. Would I invite you to wait looking ahead past the gift into the very presence of God? Not just to the gift that God's gives, but this Advent, would you try to look through the wind and the waves and beyond into the anchor that keeps us secure today, even if we won't take hold of it until then? That's the invitation. What are you waiting for? What are you hoping for? Are you willing to wait? And where is your anchor planted? If it is not rooted and fixed in God's very presence, if you're not holding on to the rope from the one who's gone before us, flee the shadows and the imitations and take hold of the hope that is ours this season. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for reminders of how good you are and how you're at work in our everyday lives, even though we don't understand it, even though we don't see it. Lord, I'm thinking of some of the stories I didn't share. I'm thinking of the man who I talked to this week who is out of hope. I'm thinking about the woman who is out of options. And I'm just asking you to extend to them a lifeline that we would be a people that have one hand on the rope and the other hand reaching back to those in our lives that are desperate and in need of you, and we're inviting them with our other hand to come with us and grab hold as strongly and as tightly as we can. And Lord, would you remind our own hearts, our own souls, in the deepest places of how good you are and that we can trust you even as we wait. So Lord, we just invite you to move in us, to invite us, to fill in in our own lives this God picture of how it can work out even this week. Would you help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one Jesus who's gone ahead of us into your very presence, and he's looking back and saying, come on, just hold on a little longer, but I've shown you the way. We ask this in his name, amen.
Now, if y'all would please rise and receive this week's benediction. Be people of hope. Let hope live in your heart and share the hope of Christ with all you meet. Share hope by noticing someone else's humanity. Share hope by listening to someone's story. Share hope by praying for our world. In this Advent season, we need to see, feel, and share hope. As you go out into the wonder of God's creations, share hope with those you meet. Now go and live in hope and peace. Amen.